Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Consumer's Law Journal on Law Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALR, PRA, Incorporated Agency. Law Publicist Communications is a full-service public relations agency focused on law firms and service industry professionals. Law Publicist Communications is headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serves greater Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. At Law Publicist Communications, we use online and offline resources to help put you on the map and keep people talking about you and your firm. We also offer coaching and consulting in traditional practice management for all attorneys, especially attorneys starting law firms and those who find themselves in transition. Today's guest is Donna Adler. Having practiced law for over 25 years, a Chicago attorney, Donna Adler, has built her career on incorporating education and service to local professionals and business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several practice areas, including without limitation, general civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense, and administrative law. Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County, Illinois, in Oak Brook Terrace. A website where you can find more information is www.donnamadlerllc.com. Again, you can also find a link to that in our show description on our Law Talk Radio page. We do want to welcome our callers this afternoon. We have a great show for you, and we will take your questions, uh, thoughts, or counterpoints by dialing into area code 917-889-9732, and you can press then option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number again is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 for the queue. I'll also take your questions and comments during the show or at any other time by email directly at nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com with Law Talk Radio in the subject line. By way of quick disclaimer before we get going today, this is a general information program and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice and results may vary based on your facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Our programming is politically neutral and objective, and counterpoints to views expressed are always welcomed. Law Talk Radio is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALR PRA incorporated agency, and Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, by way of subject matter for today's program, in this series of 10 shows, which may be more than 10 shows, uh, devoted to the impact on civil liberties of laws passed since 9-11-2001 to enhance national security, Attorney Donna M. Adler will lead us chronologically from the 9-11 Commission report through several major pieces of legislation, including but not limited, to the Homeland Security Act, the Patriot Act, Patriot II, the Military Commissions Act, and a number of other acts specifically directed to enhancing the national capacity to fight terrorism. Ms. Adler will discuss the potential for abuse of civil liberties left by such national securities legislation, as well as measures passed passed since the 9-11-2001 date directed to strengthening protections for civil liberties against such abuses. She will devote some time in the series to a discussion of high-profile court cases, helping to define the parameters of the relation between national securities laws and civil liberties. So, without further ado, we would like to uh, introduce our guest, Donna Adler, who's been on the show several times, and we're so happy to have her back here for this series. Nick, it's always great to be here on the show. Um, I want to say, first of all, in connection with this series, that I am largely a concerned citizen wanting to understand the entire um, gamut of events since 9-11, like many of the listeners out there, and I do not purport to have um, all the answers by any means, and I don't purport to be an expert. I'm someone wanting to understand what's going on, and I'm a lawyer, so I feel some kind of responsibility to um, have some comprehension also to help other people have comprehension. This is a huge set of topics that we're trying to address in this series of seminars, and as you said, it might be be more than 10 in the interest of being thorough and and careful. Not only do do I want to address um, legislation and the potential for abuse, but also legislation and the potential for effectiveness in addressing 
the kinds of problems that um, we became aware of as a nation on 9-11. I think the best way to start with this um, is the 9-11 Commission Report. That's the beginning of this, um, of this seminar series. This is a fantastic piece of work, I think. Um, the people who wrote this report did a, did a great job and tried to be thorough. The people on the commission, in case um, folks out there have not read this report and um, would like to know, there were, there were a number of people. Thomas Keene was the chair of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, Lee Hamilton was the vice chair. Richard Benveniste was, was on the commission. Bob Carey, Fred Fielding, John Lehman, Jamie Gorlick. Timothy, Timothy Roymer, Slade Gorton, and James Thompson. I think these people as commission members did this nation a great service in trying to help us understand right. what went wrong that day. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, the other thing I want to say is, uh, is, is um, everyone should read this because, they're, uh, because they have obligations to be good citizens. It's a comprehensive report. It is very meaty. This is not going to be a book report today, right. but we're going to begin to try to understand what happened 9/11 on 9/11. I think that we'll be doing more than one show on the 9/11 Commission report, just so that we can digest the material. I decided the best way to start was with the events of 9/11 themselves. Um, what were the first, the weakest links in the chain before 9/11 happened? And I'm just going to say this um, as an overview kind of statement. I think the immigration system, okay, was um, was a major source of failure, and I will discuss that somewhat today as we go along with these events. The lack of information between the CIA and the FBI about who was in the country when. We had um, at least two terrorists come in in January of 2001. The CIA knew they were there, and there was not information sharing between the CIA and FBI at that point. I mean, that's a major weak link, or was a major weak link. The FAA and its communications with NORAD on 9-11 and what the FAA did not have in place um, by 9-11, I think, was a major weak link. Another, uh, a fourth weak link was simply the lack of transparency um, between our government and U.S. citizenry about the nature of the problems we faced as a nation after the Cold War, the nature of the threats that were coming up on the horizon. I think many people on 9-11 probably didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. Strangely, we live in an age of information and in an age of communication, but we're all flooded with information, more than we can handle, and that raises the question for the effectiveness of communication. Simply because we have more communication, avenues of communication and we um, are used to living in an age of information doesn't mean that we're processing that information effectively. Um, doesn't mean that we're aware of everything out there, and in fact, um, the flood of information makes um, many significant um, events and items of news less than transparent. I agree with that, and I've heard comments from several people. I was looking at some of the weather things happening with different tsunamis and uh, events globally, and I, someone said to me, Nick, these have always been happening. We're just hearing about them more frequently because of the spread of information. So it appears that there are more events going on and others are saying, in years past, we just read it in the newspaper sometime after. Well, I'm saying there's just so much information that people don't know what to focus on. Right. Um, and they're so busy processing information that they don't have a time to educate themselves about things we all have a responsibility to be aware of. Right. But there's a lack of transparency, I think, and a lack of understanding um, among people in the American public of what actually is the nature of the threat, what is the extent of it, and until we get a real grasp on that as an American population, we can't really intelligently um, assess measures being taken to um, help protect us here at home. We can talk at cross purposes with our government, we can become combative with our government, um, or we can simply, um, we can simply, by our ignorance, um, fail to dialogue with our government so that we have measures that are either too draconian or simply ineffective mm -hmm. um, being passed. I mean, I think that uh, people try to do their jobs well um, in our government, and I also want to, to make sure I transmit that message. So I think four things to keep in mind. I'm just going to repeat them as we go throughout this series. We'll do more than one program on the 9-11 Commission report, but my overall assessment after having read this report that the biggest weak links were immigration, Lack of information between passing between the CIA and the FBI at critical times. Okay, the FAA is something that I took a look at as I read this this um, this 9/11 Commission report and thought, well, they really should have been more on the ball at some points. Um, not on that day. The regional centers operated um, with some initiative, but at the at the national level, there seemed to be a, there seemed to be a sleeping giant somewhere mm -hmm. that should have been awake. 
there was a lack of communication between the FAA and NORAD on, um, you know, on that day at the top levels of the FAA. And then again, the lack of transparency between our government and the U.S. citizenry about um, national security and the nature of the changes to our national security problems after the Cold War ended. In, um, in 1991. So let's just focus on that day. Now, what systems had failed? Okay, um, the, the immigration system had largely not protected us okay, against having people enter this country who were bad actors. Um, the CIA had not shared certain information with, that, with the FBI that, um, if shared, could have alerted people here to the presence of bad actors here, at least two of those bad actors. Um, and the, the FAA did not have certain um, systems in place. I want to focus on it will be more on the FAA and what wasn't in place, okay, and the lack of communication with NORAD. And again, from a layperson's perspective, I say these things. So I do not, I'm not, not here as an expert to criticize people and they're doing their jobs, but I'm sort of taking a step back as we, we're all in that position as citizens. We're kind mm -hmm. of in the armchair looking at this and saying, well, um, if you're sort of the, the armchair philosopher here and you have hindsight, okay, what might have worked? to prevent um, what happened on 9-11, given that these other things had failed on that day. thought the best way to go through was to start chronologically. The first um, segment of the 9-11 Commission report begins, does begin with that day. It's a somewhat cumbersome chapter to work through because it doesn't give you a, um, a chronology um, from beginning to the end of everything that was happening simultaneously. It tries to do chronologies from, um, from um, different standpoints. It'll do the chronology for what happened on flight UA-93 or AA-11. Or, right. But it doesn't give you a really good picture of um, how much was going on at one time and who knew what when. So the first thing I did in preparing for this radio program was to put together precisely that kind of chronology. Mm -hmm. And I thought that we might take a step through it. I don't want this to get all bogged down in times, okay, that morning, but and, and if it does, you'll have to stop me. Okay, but I thought we might start from the top and then pause to discuss certain things that um, that, that that were wrong. Okay, well, we have about three minutes before our first break, okay. so let's dive into it. Okay, um, in August of 2001, okay, this is the first thing the 9-11 uh, Commission report starts with, okay, a suspicious immigration inspector at Florida's Orlando International Airport refuses the entry into the United States of Mohammed Al-Qahtani, a man who is probably, they think, intended as the fifth operative for UA-93, one of the four flights that um, crashed on 9-11. There were four operatives instead of five on that flight. I want to pause right there at the very beginning. Um, I hope that man got a promotion <laughs> at the Orlando International Airport. Several times the commissioners who um, drafted this report talked to cry the lack of imagination there, there was mm -hmm. um, in some of our federal bureaucracies as far as um, as far as discussing solutions, but it's the individual initiative and individual alertness, okay, two problems that can sometimes be a, be a good protection. What was wrong, okay, I want to just pause here to say what I think um, still needs to be done to the immigration system, okay, in, the, in this country um, to help protect us. There have been a number of different immigration reforms since 9-11, um, since and some of those immigration reforms have many people up in arms. Um, and people are up in arms with respect to some legislation for good reason and um, not so good reason. We need sort of a balanced, uh, um, balanced approach to immigration. But if we just focus on immigration in relation to preventing bad actors from coming into the country, what is probably still not being done, okay, at, at consulates when people get visas? Um, I practice in the immigration area, so I have been surprised from time to time at um, who sometimes gets in, okay, mm -hmm. from other places to the U.S. consulates. Um, we're a great country. We have a lot of people who want to come here to study, uh, you know, work and do other things. But I think we have to remember that people don't just have a right to be in the United States. We should be asking a lot more questions, okay, at our consulates, not only about a person's individual background, but also about, I think, family connections, other connections. We need to ask more detailed questions, maybe questions that people would regard as intrusive so that we can put together some composite picture of who a person is as he or she comes in. If I were a person at a consulate, if my job were to, to if, if my job were at a consulate um, screening people coming in, I think that my, um, I would err on the side of caution and my instinct would be that, look, if you've got, you may be a nice person, okay, you may be perfectly legitimate, um, you may be the, the, the best human being in the world, but if you've got connections with people who are connected with, right. you cannot come in. Right. I'm not going to let you in and I'm going to make sure that my, um, my questions 
to you are designed. And if I'm the State Department, I'm going to make sure that I train my people to ask questions designed to pick up on those kinds of connections. Associations but, and whatnot. Everything. And not, not necessarily obvious questions, though. Let me give you an example of the kind of obvious question that is, is, is um, I think, utterly useless. There's one immigration form, it's called the I-485. It's used for um, adjusting status mm -hmm. from a non-immigrant uh, non status to immigrant status while someone's in the United States. Okay, the I-485 is not a form that is used at the consulates, but while someone is here, I'm just using the I-485 as, as an example because it's the best illustration I know of what I'm talking about. But when someone adjusts from non-immigrant status to immigrant status, they have to fill out this form I-485. Now, there's a section of that, a section of that form that, that I can hardly keep a straight face okay, uh, on when I'm asking people to fill it out. It um, asks questions such as, um, um, are you here to, um, are, are, have you ever been engaged in terrorist activities? Just straightforward questions like this. Okay? Are you here to blow up the um, country? Are, are you, you right, Exactly. Um, are, or are you here to, are you here to be a polygamist? That's my favorite one, okay? Um, I doesn't like ask that about show on HBO. But, yeah. I was, did you see the show Big Love at all on HBO? No. It was very interesting. I learned a lot of it. But obnoxious questions. But my, my, my reaction to that form is, is like, duh. Yeah. Okay, if someone were here, how are you ever going to catch anybody with questions like that? Right. If anyone were here, okay, for nefarious reasons, they're certainly not going to admit it on your I-485 form in answer to questions like that. So speaking about lack of imagination in our government agencies, for God's sake, okay, hire some people who, who know about um, the kinds of activities terrorists are involved in or bad actors and ask those questions. They're not going to be obvious questions. Right. We have people okay. in think tanks to design to try to elicit information out of those already captured. Why can't those same people help out with the form? These are good questions. We're going to pause for our first break, and then we'll be back with Donna Adler, more about our, our uh, intro into the 9-11 Commission report in the series that I so look forward to. And our first sponsor comes from Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Your business may be exposed to liability if your marketing materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement, call the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting www.nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. The Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme is there to help you with your advertising copy review. You can get in touch with Nancy today by visiting www.nkdlaw.com. And our second commercial sponsor message comes from Steve Fretzen and Sales Results Incorporated. If you're an attorney who's struggling to develop your book of business, try calling Sales Results. For over six years, Sales Results has been helping attorneys to double or even triple their books through their business development coaching programs. Just go ahead and call them at area code 847-317-1575. That telephone number again is area code 847 317-1575. You can also visit them online at www.salesresultsinc.com. Again, that's salesresultsinc.com. Now back to our Law Talk radio program. We always encourage our listeners to call in with their questions by dialing 917-889-9732, pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue, or if you are listening to one of our shows on archive, you can always submit a contact uh, comment through our contact page at alrpra.com. And we are back with Donna Adler. We just finished talking about the wonderful I-485 form that openly asks whether people are here with terrorist uh, intent and how obviously that is not going to help anything. So what are some of our other issues? Okay, well, what I was going to do is just continue with the chronology for the day. Okay. And so people understand the I-485 is not a form that's used at, at the consulate. So right. that was just an example of a kind of obtuse obtuse um, questions that are asked on some immigration forms and the lack of imagination that sometimes goes into designing them. If we really are serious about protecting people in the United States and we want to use the immigration system to help to do that, we've got to do, Fix our we've got to do better than that. Right. 
All right, at 6 a.m., um, Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Alamari board a flight from Portland, Maine, and they go to Logan International Airport. Now, when he checked in for his flight in Portland, Atta was tagged by the computer-assisted passenger pre-screening system as a person who should be subject to special security measures. Now, as we go through the events of that morning, it happens to be the case that that same program, CAPS, had tagged a number of other terrorists who were getting on different flights, different planes. The only, the only a flight on which there wasn't any alert at all, okay, was um, UA-175. So those folks got through, okay, without being, um, without being tagged by CAPS. Well, only one of these people, um, Atta, was tagged by CAPS. But, but the only consequence of being tagged by CAPS at that point was that you got your baggage checked a little bit better. Since, since CAPS had, um, tagged several terrorists as they tried to get on board flights. I think that what we can say about that program, if we look at the events of that day, was, wow, that was a, not a bad program in terms mm -hmm. of its ability to, to tag folks who were already in this country and who were bad actors. Right. So if you look back and you say, what if, okay, what if that, um, that program had triggered different consequences? For example, what if under that computer-assisted passenger pre-screening program, if you got tagged, you simply didn't get on the flight. And your travel companions didn't get on the flight either. Okay, that would have prevented three out of four, okay, incidents that we had on that day. Now, people will say, well, hindsight's great, okay, but why should this kind of measure have been in place on that day? Well, my argument would be this. Okay, our, our State Department, our CIA, our FBI, um, all, all these people, Key people at those agencies in dialogue with the president knew that al-Qaeda was a threat. They knew that al-Qaeda was a growing threat. And in the summer of 2001, there had been an increasing level of threat specifically from al-Qaeda. As early as December 1998, President Clinton had noticed that there might be a domestic air target. Um, the problem is no one's taking this, this um, I'm not going to say they didn't take it seriously. They did take al-Qaeda seriously. I think they didn't know exactly what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And in um, in, in their assessment of the situation, we're still expecting um, the targets to come from foreign sources or be outside the country, not necessarily in the United States. That just wasn't where their focus was. Right. So again, it's not fair in hindsight to look back at, at um, the way people were assessing the al-Qaeda threat and say you should have known X. But there had been an increasing number of um, alerts. There had been at least a suggestion, okay, for several years that um, domestic flights might be a target. And I think that rather than take the risk or, or have the hubris to think that that wasn't going to happen or that it was an impossibility, it might have made sense at that point to begin um, having measures in place that um, would be common sense measures to increase, okay, security and safety on the ground domestically. And one simple cost-effective way of doing it could have been this, um, this um, computer-assisted passenger pre-screening system, which did appear to be and turn out to be um, a relatively effective program at selecting people who needed to be looked at, even if it didn't catch everybody. Mm -hmm. It would have alerted um, folks to three out of four of these flights. Okay, well, anyway, 6.45 a.m., Atta and Omari arrived at Logan in Boston. And then Atta's on a call um, with, with another terrorist, Shahi, at another terminal in Logan. All right, so um, between 6.45 and 7.40 a.m., Atta Amari and Satan Sukwami, in, in other words, the A11 team, okay, check in and board A11. A couple other members, okay, of that team get tagged by CAPS, okay, in Boston. All right, so Atta had been tagged in, in, in Maine, and then, um, and then some of these others had been selected for special screening by CAPS in Boston. Okay, then you have the check on going on about the same time between 6.45 and 7.40 by the UA, the United Airlines 175, okay, flight that was also going from Boston to Los Angeles. Both AA11 and UA 175 were going from Boston to Los Angeles that, that day. Between 7.03 and 7.39, you have um, another terrorist team in Newark, New Jersey, checking on UA93. Only two of these four people, okay, check bags. One of, the, one of the people on this team was selected by CAPS. Okay, so then again, another person tagged by CAPS. Mm -hmm. And then for AA77 at 7.15 a.m., you have another terrorist team checking in at the American Airlines ticket counter in Dulles Airport. Okay, to, uh, and both of these people were flagged by CAPS. 
So you see, if, these, if this CAF system had had different consequences, we may have been able to avert three catastrophes on 9-11, on and that's all, um, that's all in hindsight. Well, 7.59 a.m., okay, AA-11 takes off, okay, from Boston to Los Angeles. There are um, 81 passengers on board and nine flight attendants. At 8.14, there's a last routine radio communication of AA-11, and um, the 9-11 Commission um, estimates and all the evidence indicates that um, the takeover of that flight occurred right about that time at 8.14. At the same time, UA-175 takes off. 56 passengers and seven flight attendants are on board there. By 8.19, okay, four minutes after the last routine radio communication from AA-11, there's a flight attendant on that flight, Betty Ong, who informs the American Airlines Reservation Desk in Cary, New Jersey, of the hijacking of the flight. Now, that call lasts for 25 minutes. Now, this was a place of opportunity. If we had had a certain kind of system in place, we may have been able to avert a lot, um, a lot of what happened that morning, not all of it, right. but much of it. There was no system. If there had been some system of immediate notification to all planes in the air of this report at the time it was made, some kind of system of instantaneous notification that perhaps didn't depend upon individuals communicating to other individuals, but simply an automatic, um, an automatic way to notify all planes in the air, all airlines. It could even be a button that lit up. Yes. Okay. That there had been a report. Yeah. Okay. Or even if there had been something on 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 the airline itself, accessible only to the flight attendants, who as soon as they became aware of a hijack attempt, all they would have had to do is press a button or a code or something to alert not only um, the airlines for which they worked um, that there had been a hijack on the plane, but the notification would also go to the, um, to the FAA. The, the FAA was organized into regional centers responsible for different segments of, um, of the country's airspace. Um, all those centers should have, been, should have been notified all at once. Okay, if they had been notified all at once, if there had been some mechanism to um, notify the airlines, every, every airline, all the planes in the air, all the FFA regional centers and, and the FAA headquarters, and NORAD as well, at the same time, mm -hmm. then um, some of the response time in this 9-11 situation would have been a lot stronger and we might have been able to avert some of these catastrophes. Now, once the planes were in the air, okay, it's a little bit, it's a little bit iffy what could happen and what couldn't. Okay, at 819, but let's look at this. 820, you had the takeoff of AA-77, which was going from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. So Betty Ong calls the reservation desk at American Airlines at 819. If there had been some kind of red light system, that plane, even though there had only been a minute, would never have taken off. Right. Okay. If there had been also, um, I want to add to that, not only a system of immediate notification, but as soon as someone reported a hijacking, if that automatically triggered a grounding, okay, of all planes, okay, no more takeoffs, and a landing order, because those are, that's one thing that worked. It was really impressive. Um, once a landing order for all planes was given, how quickly and expeditiously our air traffic controllers handled that. I mean, that was a really professional element of this operation. At that point, you know, when 9-11 um, when was occurring, no one knew how many planes, okay, were targeted. After all, when it became apparent that multiple planes had been targeted, and finally, um, a landing order for all the planes was given. The landing order was, was executed by um, civilian, civilians, okay, with remarkable efficiency and professionalism. So that was something that really did work on 9-11. The problem was the timing of some of the, the reaction time here, the response time, because people didn't know uh, in all sectors of the, of the government or the different agencies or even um, um, in throughout the airline industry what was going on. Okay, so if we had had an immediate notification system, as I said, and then if, um, if there were some kind of red light system where all the airlines, all the centers of the FAA operating um, at, at the different regions and the FAA headquarters and NORAD were immediately on alert when there was a hijack report and if planes were immediately grounded in order to land when there was a hijack report. Um, if that kind of system had been in place, we would have been able to avert a lot of this. And I think that that there there had been there had been um, events 
in the summer of 2001 that should have triggered some kind of discussion about that kind of system domestically. And what I'd want to know is what those discussions were to have a system like that. We're going to pause for our uh, halfway break uh, in a second, but I, my, when you say ground, a system to ground all the planes, I think of um, fire drills. If there's a, or a fire alarm, you pull a fire alarm and everyone is get, you know walks out of it. It's a similar thing where it's everyone is then stopped. So if you have a system where someone pulls that fire alarm on the plane slash believes there's a terrorist, you could, how often do we have all these planes stopping? And this is maybe just like the counterpoint. I'm, um, I can see people saying, how much is that going to cost? We cannot afford to stop, you know, what, and now we come into the, the thought of what can we afford? Can we afford to risk human lives? Or what's the expense of stopping and uh, having all these planes grounded every time someone thinks? And what if we have someone who uh, thinks there's a terrorist report because they see someone of a racial makeup and you've got a flight attendant who thinks, you know, how, at what level do they confirm? So, you know, you look at that, just having a system in place like that, that could take five years of study and research just to figure that out, wouldn't uh, There's so many things to think about, aren't, you know? Well, perhaps perhaps there there is, but I think it would be more cost effective to have that kind of system than to, than uh, to lose. Well, I mean, we have massively reorganized the government. And right. when bureaucracy was part of the problem, what we've done is create a bigger bureaucracy in some way. So as we go through some of the legislation, I, can, I think that um, we have to ask ourselves um, how much of this is effective and how much of it really isn't going to solve, um, isn't going to solve the problem. And that, um, that kind of analysis will be for future programs. Right, exactly. Okay. So we're going to pause for our second break here. This is such interesting stuff. I'm so glad we're doing this series. At the halfway point through our show, we bring you the daily legal news, and today's daily legal news comes from the Huffington Post out of Washington. The, I'll read this. It is an article about uh, the state of Arkansas striking down a law uh, state – well, it was a state law in Arkansas barring same-sex couples from adopting. So the text of the – the short text of the article is that Arkansas High Court struck down the state's law barring same-sex couples from adopting on Thursday. In an opinion published without dissent, the court argued that the law violated individuals' right to privacy. Supporters of the law are expected to fight the ruling. Arkansas voters approved Act 1 as a ballot measure in 2008. It prohibits unmarried couples who live together from adopting children, in every effect shutting out gay and lesbian couples who are not allowed to marry in the state. Act 1 directly and substantially burdens the privacy rights of opposite-sex and same-sex individuals who engage in private, consensual sexual conduct in the bedroom by foreclosing their eligibility to foster or adopt children should they choose to cohabit with their sexual partner. That was the conclusion of the court and the ruling embedded below that, quote, the pressure on such couples to live apart, should they wish to foster or adopt children, is clearly significant, end quote. More you can find on that article about the Arkansas High Court in the Huffington Post today. And moving on, our third commercial sponsor is Jim Thompson and the Get Clients Now program. If you want to get more clients, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. Jim, Trump, Jim Thompson's program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit LawyersMarketingResource.com. Again, that website is www.LawyersMarketingResource.com. You can check out the testimonials right there on that website. Law Publicist Communications strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim today by emailing him at jet at midwestconsultants.net. So that's plural, and J-E-T like jet, at midwestconsultants.net. We want to remind our listeners before we go back into our show that many people do find our uh, our shows through their social networks, and they find our shows in their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. And we thank you for all of your support in sharing our programming with others. Of course, if you have programming suggestions or information that you think would make a good show, please be in touch with us. Our telephone number at our Chicago office is area code 312 854 7149 again 
854-7149. And, of course, you can visit our website at www.alrpra.com. Okay, now back to our show with Donna. Nick, okay, yes. to answer your question about... Um, cost and expense. And, well, yeah. I can't answer, of course, the questions about cost and expense because I'm not a, a designer like that. I mean, that's something like that would have to be planned planned out. But when you have someone who is who's specifically a flight attendant notifying the reservation desk um, and specifically saying, this plane's been hijacked. <laughs> right, right. I think that that's a pretty clear pretty message. Safe. That, that's a pretty safe, down, that's a pretty right. safe um, uh, uh, link for a pretty safe trigger for a red light system, I think. If we had had some kind of red light system that right. notified everyone that needed to be notified um, simultaneously so that it didn't depend on their communication with each other and simultaneously also triggered um, a grounding of all the planes and an order for planes in the air to land, okay, then uh, we would have been able to avert um, a great deal of trouble and um, allow folks to respond in ways that they were not able to respond on, on 9-11. I agree. Two of the planes would not have, been, would not have taken off. Um, AA-77 that was bound from Washington to Los Angeles, that's the plane that crashed into the Pentagon, would not have taken off, and mm -hmm. the plane that crashed in, into, in Pennsylvania would not have taken off if we'd had that kind of system in place. The um, UA-175, okay, which was hijacked, um, which was hijacked after, um, after American Airlines 11, would have been on notice that there was something afoot. And it's possible that the passengers in that airplane um, could have done something proactive to disrupt the plans of the, um, of the hijackers on that flight. Because there was talk on that flight, we know this from um, phone calls that took place between at least one passenger and uh, um, at least one passenger and another person from that flight that that people on that flight were thinking about rushing the cockpit, but they had no information about what had happened to uh, right. AA-11. And again, the thing that that, that I, I thank you for keying in on is that they had a known, it was a known situation. It wasn't just suspected that there was a problem. It was a known problem. That's the only thing that I would be nervous about is that people could ground all the planes based on Suspicion only. Right. I mean, and this was was obviously something more than suspicion because it's a flight attendant telling right. the American Airlines that this plane's been hijacked. Okay, so it was a clear message that um, there was there was something something wrong. Now at 8:21, which comes two minutes after this flight attendant notifies the American Airlines reservation desk. Um, the transponder on the plane is turned off. When I was reading the details of this, I thought to myself, uh, why is it possible? So what does that mean? That means the, the plane can't be tracked as easily. There's a primary radar system of returns that um, the controllers can still use to track airplanes, but it's less specific than um, the kind of tracking they can do through a transponder. So um, I had another question there. Uh, what, if, what if there had been a system that couldn't have been turned off? Okay, um, and I don't know whether whether that would have made sense with respect in, in relation to the transponder or whether it would have to be something separate, but there should be something that cannot be turned off so that a plane can be tracked in the air. When the Otis fighter jets were later scrambled to look for this plane, they didn't even know it had crashed, and they were still looking for it, okay? Wow. Uh, when NORAD was finally notified about, um, about uh, to, to become involved in the AA-11 situation, it had crashed, and they were still looking for it. And there were false reports that that plane was still in the air after it had crashed and was heading toward a different destination. If if there had been a system that was not able to be turned off, then everyone would have been able to locate that plane. They would have known that it crashed, and um, the Otis jets that had been scrambled would perhaps have been able to respond to some of the other situations going on in the air. I have a question. I know maybe you're getting there. Has the president been notified yet? Not yet. He doesn't know a thing All of yet. All this is happening. And has, you know, and he, doesn't, he doesn't know anything. Okay, and okay. not yet. Um, so... Finally, okay, as we as we go through the through, through the chronology, you have American Airlines trying to deal with the situation. Okay, and of course, some air traffic um, controllers at the FAA are are aware that something is going wrong because because they're um, not able to contact um, AA11. Okay, so at 8:24, 38 a.m. A message is transmitted by a hijacker pilot of A11, and it's over the air traffic control okay, system. But, but people, the assigned controller can't interpret this message. The message is, we have some planes, in the plural. And he didn't hear, he didn't hear the plural. The message was unintelligible to the assigned controller. He didn't hear it. That message had to be checked, and it's not until much later that they, they figure out that it was plural. 
So a second transmission occurs that's going over the air traffic controller lines, and so they know this is confirmation that this plane has been hijacked. So Boston Center, which is the regional center of the FAA that, that handles the northeast sector, is aware of the hijacking because of AA-11, but still no one's contacted NORAD. No one's contacted the military yet. There's a chain of command that, that, that they were supposed to follow at the FAA, FAA to do that. It ended up that day that that chain of command was not followed through and that the regional centers took the initiative to contact um, the, the military directly themselves. Um, Boston Center managers, though, started um, notifying their chain of command within the FAA that the, um, the plane had been hijacked. Okay, um, at 8.26, which, which comes um, how many minutes afterward now? Well, 8.19, she first reported the problem. Ten minutes later, she reports that the plane's flying erratically. At 8.27, a minute later, it starts changing course. There's a second um, air hostess from AA-11 on, um, on the line to the American Flight Services Center in Boston. She's talking about what the situation is. Finally, at 8.28, um, um, the Boston Center of the FAA calls its Central Command Center in Herndon to advise that it believed that, that um, the plane had been hijacked and was heading toward New York Center's airspace. Um, so, so think about this. Boston Center of the FAA knows. The Central Command Center of the FAA knows, knows, but none of the other regional FAA centers in the country know what's going on. This turns out to be a problem because Indianapolis Center was the center that was, was watching AA-77. That, that plane, um, that plane was going west, okay, and it turned around and that's the plane that hit the Pentagon. They were not aware of what was going on in the northeast sector in Indianapolis. So when they lost sight of AA-77, they thought the plane had crashed or that there were electrical or mechanical failures. Right. And this was after, okay, it was the situations um, in the air involving AA-11 and even UA-175 were uh, apparent to, to other people. At 8.32, okay, so this is, this is um, now more than, um, at 8.19, for, this is 12 minutes. No one has contacted NORAD 12 minutes after the first awareness of a problem. The FAA's Herndon Command Center passed word of a possible hijacking, a possible hijacking yeah. of AA-11 to the operations center at FAA headquarters. Okay, so the security personnel there are just beginning to discuss um, an apparent hijack on a conference call with the New York Regional Office. The FAA headquarters began to follow the hijack protocol, but they did not contact the National Military Command Center to request a fighter escort. This is 12 minutes later. Now, people may think 12 minutes isn't a long time. You don't have a lot of time, and 12 minutes is a lot of time for this kind of situation. So what I'm saying is you need something that's going to work a lot quicker, and that's why I was suggesting a red light system mm -hmm. where you have immediate notification that's not dependent upon following these chains of command, and right. everybody right. gets noticed at the same time that there's a situation. Right. Um, occurring. Finally, um, at 8.34, at 8.37, at 8.37.52 a.m., okay, so again, you have to think, what's the timing here? Okay, that's, that's 20 minutes, that's almost 20 minutes after Betty Ong called to report the hijack. Boston Center reached um, the um, reached needs, which is the, the um, northeast sector of NORAD, okay, and advises that um, it wasn't engaging in an exercise where they had a real problem, that they had a hijacked aircraft heading, toward New, heading towards New York and needed some F-16s or something scrambled. Okay, so needs ordered two battle stations, two F-15 alert aircraft at Otis Air Force Base. Okay, now this is 837-52, okay, but they don't know where they're scrambling, okay? So these jets don't know where they're going, okay? And remember, the transponder on AA-11 is turned off, so they can't locate this plane, okay? They can't locate it precisely. They can, they can try to find primary radar returns and work with the controllers that way, but they don't know precisely where the plane is, so they don't know where to scramble to, and they need, um, they need directions on that. Okay, at the same time, okay, that's about a minute later, Betty Ong on AA-11 is still advising um, the person at American Airlines she's in contact with that the plane's flying erratically. Um, Again, Boston Center notifies needs again, okay, of the hijacking of the plane. And at um, 8.42, okay, at 8.42, another a situation begins to occur, but when does the, um, when does AA-11 crash into the uh, north tower of um, the World Trade Center? 8.46, so you think, okay, Boston Center finally contacts needs, it's 8.37. It's 8 yeah. The response time is less than 10 minutes. And those Otis fighter jets didn't know where to scramble. So the plane crashes into, into the World Trade Center. Um, I'm not saying that there was enough time in the 10 minutes for the jets to scramble to get there, but it's this sort of lack in response time and the, um, 
that you have to take a look at. They had a remarkably short period of time in which to react if they were going to do anything at all about this situation. So there was just not a whole lot of time. And I think that we, we need to be very realistic about that. In these air situations, there isn't a lot of time. A minute is a long time. Right. And our response, our, our civil defense response has got to be geared toward understanding that a minute is not a long time. Right, right. As okay, you're so talking about this, a lot of things I'm thinking about the military and everything I hear about um, destroyers can be so far off the coast of Libya and almost pinpoint yeah, we see. It's, it's, I don't think it's that we don't have the technology. It seems very troubling to me that the technology is earmarked for, uh, for different. I in a lot of, I think that the technology is there for some of the wrong. I don't want to say the wrong things, but why can't we adopt this and bring this in? Well, I can't really. As I, I read the 9/11 Commission report. I couldn't really fault the. I couldn't really fault the military. It was the lack of communication to the military by people who should have been communicating with the military that I think. Uh, what's Good difficulty, point. but it's troubling to me that um, um, that it's troubling to me that that NORAD was not did not have um, notice of this. Okay, as as soon as the private airlines had notice, which is why I'm thinking that um, a private sector, um, you know, a a um, red light system of some kind is is needed. Definitely, we're going to pause for our last break before our last 15 minute segment, and then we'll finish out some of the events and uh, history and chronology of that terrible day in September 2011. And at the point of the show, and our our three quarters point through uh, the show, we bring you law practice management resources from the ABA, from Law Publishing, and your very own ALRPRA's Law Publicist Communications. First. From the ABA Publishing, the title of tour today is Educating Children Without Housing, 3rd Edition. This title addresses the federal education mandates related to homeless students under the McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act. The manual provides innovative strategies for educators and school administrators, state coordinators, and policymakers, as well as advocates and attorneys to play a role in ensuring the education rights of children and youth experiencing homelessness. So again, from ABA Publishing, Educating Children Without Housing, the third edition. Secondly, from Law Bulletin Publishing Company, when you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you will receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips for lawyers going through a career transition. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux in their careers. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published on the Attorneys in Transition site, and I do hope you drop by, visit, and leave your comment at www.attorneysintransition.com. Finally, here at Law Law Publicist Communications, we help you get your clients and colleagues talking about you. What do they say? Do you need to create a logo, a website, or brand image? Do you have all the time to do these things yourself, or does your staff? We can counsel and coach you, or you can hand us the keys and let us help you make sense of public relations for law firms and businesses. Law Publicist Communications is a public relations agency serving lawyers and professional services firms. We can put you on the map and get people talking about you and your firm. Please visit www.alrpra.com or search in Google for Law Publicist Communications for more information. And our fourth commercial sponsor message today comes from credit damage expert George Finder. Your credit score and reputation are valuable assets. If you suffer damage to your credit score, you should consider your damages. Credit damage expert George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount on damage to your credit score. Credit uh, George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and the attorneys and plaintiffs who've retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas such as personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder is available for consulting on damage to credit reputation. 
His website is full of resources and a video. You can visit creditdamageexpert.com, again, www.creditdamageexpert.com, to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. Now back to our show for our final segment. We want to also remind people that if you have any programming suggestions, you can always drop us a line on our Facebook fan page simply by searching for Law Talk Radio under the search bar on Facebook. Now back with Donna Adler on the 9-11 Commission Report and the events that occurred during that tragic day in September of 2011. Yeah, I'd like to say just a little bit more about um, response times. So it's almost 20 minutes after um, Betty Ong first reports the hijacking that Boston Center, Boston Center contacts NEEDS, the, the northeast sector of NORAD. Mm-hmm. It takes NEEDS, okay, until 8.46 to scramble those Otis fighter jets. They didn't know where to send them. And when does AA-11 crash? It crashes 30 seconds later. It crashes 30 seconds after the Otis jets are scrambled. So they just didn't have enough time, okay, to to deal with the situation, um, given what the situation was that morning. So um, American Airlines crashes. American Airline 11 crashes into um, the North Tower. No one, the White House is not on notice of this yet. No one at the White House or traveling with the president knew that the plane had been hijacked at this time. Um, Information circulated within the FAA, but there's no evidence that it was reported to any other agency in Washington before 846. Most federal agencies learned about the crash from CNN, as the commissioners noted in their report. And even within the FAA, um, Jane Garvey, who was the administrator and the acting um, deputy, uh, Monty Berger, had not been told of a confirmed hijacking before they learned it from the television. I'm saying that's just that's just not acceptable. Uh, we need a stronger civil defense system than that. All right. Well, by the time this plane crashes, AA-77 crashes, UA-175 is in trouble. Okay. It was probably hijacked um, shortly after 8:42. Its last radio communication was likely take, taken over between 8:42 and 8:46. Um, in the meantime, while that plane is being taken over, UA-93 um, UA is, um, is off the ground. It takes off 25 minutes late. So it's just taking off while the trouble with UA-175 is, uh, and that's the plane that crashed into the second tower of the World Trade Center, is beginning to experience problems, okay? Um, so the UA transponder code, the UA-175 transponder code changes twice within a minute at 8.47 a.m. Now, interestingly, the same controller was handling both American Airlines 11 and, and um, United Airlines 175. Because he's dealing with the American Airlines 11 situation, he doesn't notice at first that the transponder code had changed on United Airlines 175. He's still trying to locate um, American Airlines 11, which has crashed by this point. Um, no one can confirm for a while that it's American Airlines 11 that has crashed. Okay, now word does reach need shortly after 8.50 that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. For some reason, they don't translate this into, um, into notice that it's American Airlines 11. And there were, as I said, false reports circulated um, after that, that that plane was somehow still in the air. Okay, at 8.51, um, UA-175, which is the plane that struck the second um, World Trade Center tower, deviated from its assigned altitude. In the meantime, there's a last routine um, radio communication with AA-77, the American Airlines flight, um, that was headed west that eventually turned around and um, crashed into the Pentagon. Okay, at 8.52, um, New York air traffic controllers are becoming worried about UA-175. They're trying unsuccessfully to contact it. Mm-hmm. At 8.52, a male flight attendant notifies United Airlines in San Francisco that UA-175 had been hijacked. Okay, he stated that the flight had been hijacked. Again, um, we, there was not some unified alert system. It's still the case at 8.52, after, after AA-11 has already crashed in the World Trade Center, that uh, American Airlines and United Airlines, American Airlines is dealing with the situation. United Airlines is just becoming aware of a situation with its own flights, okay? And no other airline has been notified. And the other centers of the FAA, other than the Boston and New York centers, are unaware of a problem. 
Oh okay, my! Around the country. Okay. That's shocking. Well, it's it's it is alarming <laughs> that uh, the other regional centers did not know that there was um, that there was a problem uh, that there was a problem on the ground. Strengthening your argument for the red button. That's so for sure. So New York Center is saying finally at eight fifty three um, they think they have a hijack on UA one seventy five, but he can't find the craft again because the transponder. Um, I think the transponder is off by that time. In the meantime, while this is developing, okay, at 8.53, and, and uh, New York Center is becoming aware that there's a problem on UA-175, um, American Airlines 77, which was going to crash into the Pentagon and did crash into the Pen Pentagon, is taken over. It makes an unauthorized turn to the south. Okay, so those two situations are going on at the same time, American Airlines 77 and United Airlines. Um, at 8.55, New York Center suspects the hijacking of the plane. Well, I wouldn't say suspect at this point. Someone already told him three minutes earlier that, uh, that the plane had been hijacked. The president, um, Carl Rove contacts the president in Sarasota, Florida at 8.55. While the situations are occurring on these two planes in the air, nobody, uh, he wouldn't know about those. But he told the president, because uh, this had been the information from Condoleezza Rice at the White House, that a small twin-engine plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. Now, that still kind of amazes me that that would have been the initial communication. And in the absence of information that the plane crash had been something other um, than that, and even when it was confirmed that it had been a commercial aircraft, um, the White House just monitored the news at that point. I mean, mm -hmm. it could have been just an accident, right? Okay, at 8.56 a.m., the transponder of AA-77 is turned off, and it, it, it disappears completely from the radar Indianapolis Center, which is not aware of what's going on with American Airlines 11 or with um, United Airlines 175. Okay, so United Airlines 175 is taking a heading toward New York City at this point. The Otis fighter jets still don't know where they've been scrambled to. They still are not aware that um, that perhaps it's AA-11 that crashed into the World Trade Center, and they're hanging out, okay, waiting until someone tells them where to go. Basically, um, it's a much longer chronology that day than we can um, than we can possibly even get through here today. But the the upshot of it is that um, UA-175, okay, again crashes into the World Trade Center tower before the before the um, before the military has a chance to respond to that situation either. When does someone finally ground the flight? Okay? American Airlines grounds its flight nationwide by 9:10. It had already done an earlier ground stop in the uh, in the northeast sector. Shortly after 9:10, United Airlines ordered a nation ground stop, uh, a nationwide ground stop too. Well, what had happened um, with respect to with respect to the second crash, and when did that second crash take place? Let me just get you the exact time it did. I'm wondering if the president president knows yet. Well, he had been advised that one plane, okay, had crashed into the. Um, Track crashed into the World Trade Center, but the um, United Airlines 175 crashed into um, the World Trade Center at 9:20. Okay, so by 9:10, um, United Airlines and American Airlines had grounded all of their flights nationwide. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they were the the um, outfits. These private companies had grounded the planes. It wasn't until 9:25 that the FAA issued a ground stop. And, 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 and the, the second build, the second plane hit the second tower at what, 920 something? At 920. Say? At 910, American Airlines had grounded its planes at, um, at, um, at 910, right around 910, United Airlines had done so as well. And at 925, after the second crash. I don't understand why they didn't do it after the first crash, you would think. Um, the Herndon Command Center uh, at 925 ordered a nationwide ground stop. So it wasn't until after the second crash, 15 minutes, okay, after American Airlines and United Airlines had issued their own um, nationwide ground stops of things on their airline. And again, I, I just want to stress that at this point, um, there had been no effort to contact any other airlines or notify them of what was going on. So in 9:25, the Herndon uh, Command Center grounds all flights nationwide, and that would have been the first notice of. Um, many of the other airlines um, flying in the airspace that day that um, there was a serious, serious problem. So there was, again, with the red light system, all airplanes in the air 
should have known or would have known um, that there was a situation um, as, as soon as it happened with American Airlines. You know, so again, through our first uh, first show today in our series on 9-11 and the Commission Report, we've gone through uh, the beginning of that morning at 6 a.m. in Portland through until we're about 9.50 in the morning um, when the FAA decides to... No, no, 9.25. Well, 9.25 in the morning when the FAA grounds all the planes. What are your? We have a few minutes, a uh, couple minutes left, two minutes left. You, what are, What are some of your overall comments here? Uh, well, some overall comments were, you know, there were there were two sets of fighters that were eventually scrambled. Some from Langley Air Force Base, two, and then Otis fighters. But the Otis fighters are reach New York when they get to New York at 9:25. That's when they get there. Yeah. Um, they were scrambled at 8:46. They get to New York at 9:25. That's five minutes after the second plane um, had hit the World Trade Center. So they, they established combat air patrol over the city of New York. They were somewhat concerned about refueling at that point, but they're there in New York. Okay, now um, at at 9:37, okay, the um, American Airlines 77 had crashed into the Pentagon. All right, now if you look at 9:25, well, they, they get to New York at 9:25, but if they had had more information about what planes were in the air, if those transponders had not been able to be turned off or if there had been some system to make sure that um, some premium tracking could be done on those planes. Um, they would not have had to, they, would have, they, would, they could have been utilized more effectively. Right. Perhaps they could have done something about the plane that eventually um, crashed into the Pentagon. Perhaps there would have been enough time for them to react to that. But they were, they were scrambled. They didn't know where they were going. The second plane had already crashed into the World Trade Center by the time they got to New York, where they were scrambled to hang out generally. And, um, again, that, that made them useless as far as um, Flight 77 was concerned. Yeah, we see, we, we see so many of the, <laughs> the, the problem, I'm, I'm thinking, that we now know what can go wrong with an airline catastrophe. And I, I'm assuming, so we see some general themes, and I'm hoping that some of these themes of centralized warning and knowledge management are things that can be applied to some other disasters with chemical warfare or other disasters and things. I just think overall a lot of the themes that I'm hearing are, again, just knowledge management and using technology appropriately. So um, we got about a minute left. Uh, some other, anything else you want to share about this first uh, series? And we went through the beginning of the day until the notification by the FAA and such. Um, well, we're on planes, and we still have two planes in the air. Yeah, okay. we still and, have two planes in the air. And um, the Langley and the Langley fighters um, being scrambled in response to the situation, and then uh, some kind of handle on uh, an attempt to get some kind of handle on what was going on with um, with the White House and who was becoming aware of things um, when. But overall, okay, the on, on United Airlines 93, which is the plane that crashed into um, into the field in Pennsylvania, that plane was was probably targeted for the Capitol building. Right. Okay, that comes through in the 9/11 Commission report. So what they did was prevent that target from 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 being hit. But again, what was crucial? The passengers on UA 93 knew what was going on. They were in communication with people on the ground, and there were at least 10 passengers on that plane in, um, in communication with people on the ground who told them what had happened at the World Trade Center. They knew their plane was being hijacked, and they decided to take matters into their own hands. Um, this country owes them a debt of gratitude because that plane did not hit its target. All three other planes did hit, did hit their targets. Um, the plane that turned around to hit the Pentagon was one that the Indianapolis Center didn't have the notice. Um, if they had known what was going on in the air, they would have been very suspicious early on of what was happening with American Airlines 77. That plane flew undetected for almost 30 minutes. Wow. Okay? And the first notice to the military that that plane was missing came at 9.34 a.m., and it came by chance. And then at 9.37, so three minutes after, the, the, the military first had noticed that that plane was missing. It crashed into the Pentagon. Wow. Again, zero response time there, almost. Right. Very, very troubling to hear about after the fact. I think we all remember that morning, and I look forward to, as we continue to explore some of the themes 
uh, and things we're seeing here. Uh, very interesting, the 9-11 Commission report, and also the uh, extension of other things that we'll talk about in this series um, devoted to the impact, again, on civil liberties and some of the laws that were passed since 9-11, enhancing national security. So, Donna, I want to thank you for being here today. Um, any contact information you want to give the folks at home, if they, uh, you know, separate from what we're talking about here, um, you know, you have a law practice uh, here I in do. Chicagoland. Well, my, my number is 630-310-8302. She's a great lawyer, trust me. Uh, <laughs> all right. We also want to thank our commercial sponsors today as well as our guests who tune into our shows and listen either live or archive. First sponsor, we had Nancy K. Ducharme of the Law Offices of Nancy K. Ducharme. Secondly, Steve Fretzen and Sales Results Incorporated. Third, Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group and the Get Clients Now program. And fourth, credit damages expert George Finder. You can find all of our archive shows on ALRPRA.com forward slash law talk radio. That is hyphens. You might as well just Google law talk radio and get there that way. But quick disclaimer to round out our show. This is a general information program. The advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice, and the results may vary based on your facts and location. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Programming is politically neutral and objective. Counterpoints to views expressed are always welcomed. Law Talk Radio is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALRPRA incorporated agency. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests, and finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to bring our non-attorney and attorney audiences the tips, tools, practice area, information, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services and knowledge generally. With guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. This is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and we thank you for your time.